As he thus went counting the flinty pavement, dancing as toward to the music his own hoofs made, for as they say from iron came music's origin, what envious flint, cold as old Saturn, and like him possessed with fire malevolent, darted a spark, or what fierce sulfur else to this end made, I comment not. The hot horse, hot as fire, took toy at this and fell to what disorder his power could give his will. Bounds, comes on end, forgets school doing, being therein trained and of kind managed. Pig-like, he whines at the sharp rowl, which he frets at rather than any jot obeys, seeks all foul means of boisterous and rough jadery to deceit his lord that kept it bravely. When not served, when neither curb would crack, girth break, nor differing plunges, disroot his rider whence he grew, but that he kept him between his legs. On his hind hoofs, on end he stands, that Arcides' legs, being higher than his head, seemed with strange art to hang. His victor's wreath even then fell off his head, and presently backward the jade comes over, and his full poise becomes the rider's load. Hi, I'm Alexa San. And I'm Ian McInnes. And this is Real Fantastic Beasts. Because we believe that learning about animals and history and literature and art helps us understand our place among our fellow creatures today. And we have a guest today. We're very excited about this. Uh, we have with us Karen Raber, a professor of English at the University of Mississippi. Dr. Raber has written extensively on animal studies in the early modern period and on horses in particular, which is, as you might have guessed, our, our subject for today. Uh, she's also a leader in collaborative work. She edited several books on Shakespeare and animals, serves as the executive director of the Shakespeare Association of America, and also, also, a dressage writer herself. You know, you're you're reading that wonderful primary source, and, and I, I sort of thought, the first thing I thought is, when, when I have fallen off of a horse, it seems to happen a lot more quickly. <laughs> but, but So tell us a little bit about that passage. Where does it come from, and, uh, and why did you pick it? This is from Shakespeare's play, Two Noble Kinsmen. Uh, not a particularly popular play at this point in most academic circles, uh, except for very few people who are interested in a few of its aspects. But Two Noble Kinsmen features um, two noble kinsmen, Palamon and Arcite, who are in competition for the hand of Amelia, a lady-in-waiting to Theseus. Um, they compete with each other and have you know, a, a huge fight, which Arcite wins. So at this moment, when he is about to um, celebrate his victory, he is expecting to have Amelia as his wife at the end of this. And he goes on a little you know, process with his horse and everybody parading around him, celebrating him. And of course, the horse does what horses do and basically has a fit because uh, something upsets it. As the passage says, it's not it's not easy to tell whether it was a, a spark from his hooves, but this is a hot horse, a very, very spirited horse. And so it disobeys and it acts up. And Arcite, this is the thing I find fascinating about this passage. Like it does all the things you expect it to do for a Renaissance passage. Like Arcite is trying to dominate his horse and the horse is being everything that a beast is. It's resisting, it's fighting him. It refuses to remember its training. And in the end, the fact that Arcite is such a good rider that he won't give up his seat is what kills him. Um, the horse actually goes over backwards 
crushes him and he dies in the next scene. Sorry, that was spoiler alert. I should have mentioned. Um, but he, you know, he's clearly being indicted as a human being who's not fully in control of his passions, um, which is what drove him to compete for Amelia's hand in the first place. Um, and not to relinquish her to his friend, his very best friend. But I also find the passage interesting because it actually sets up a contrast between a kind of ancient set of values about what a horseman is, which is this dominant tyrant who controls through force and education, versus one of the things that we might see in it now, which is a, a, a guy who's actually a really bad rider who doesn't know how to get past a moment like this because he doesn't understand how to cooperate with his own horse's perspective on what's happening to him. This would never have been a reading that you could do in the Renaissance, obviously, I think, obviously. Um, but it is a reading that we can do now, I think, and say that, you know, this is actually not model horsemanship. Um, and Arcite, who's celebrated throughout as the superior rider, is making a terrible mistake, and that mistake kills him. It's related to a bunch of other, I, I, I told you before, I'm interested in people who fall off their horses in the Renaissance, um, just because it's it shakes up the paradigm of the horse as the demonstration of noble mastery. There's a wonderful passage in Montaigne in his essays where he, he it's on practice and he recounts his experience, a real experience of almost being killed in a horsemanship accident very like this, where his horse rears up because it's startled and falls over, and he is actually uh, in danger of his life afterwards. And he also uses it in various interesting ways um, to explore the idea of things like the size of the animal, the insignificance of the human on its back, um, the way that it responds to an environment the human doesn't understand, that kind of thing. He even goes so far as to link it to what we would now call the autonomous, you know, um, our uh, autonomic system, the way in which our bodies do things without our being in control of them. So his experience of being out of control on the horse is a little bit like being out of control of your body when it does things that you don't want it to do. That's super interesting because, you know, well, you probably know better than than anyone that a lot of people who are equestrians really talk about the horses, the horse body and the human body kind of being extensions of one another that you have to kind of grow into each other. Yeah, the centaur figure is the ideal of horsemanship. I think the wrinkle in that is that in the Renaissance, it's an image actually of mastery, not always or only of cooperation. So mm -hmm. to become a centaur, the human mind has to control the bestial body. Um, it does require the unification of those two bodies. And I've always argued that that is inherently undermining the idea that the human is actually you know, superior in any way. Like the, the unification of those two bodies tells you that those two things can can come together in important ways that defy the idea of a single source of control or of mastery. So yeah, it's a complicated image, but it is more traditional. And Arcite is almost a centaur and then comes apart. The whole thing comes apart. <laughs> yep. Well, uh, I mean, these are they're, they're surrounded by real horses and they are riding those horses. And if you climb on a horse and think that you're in an allegory of, of dominance <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> you you may find that that reality has a way of uh, insisting yes. that that your your model is not correct. Yeah, I, mean, I have to confess that one of the things that kind of shocked me when I first was reading Two Noble Kinsmen was 
Uh, many of us have had the exact experience that our society has had. It isn't unusual, especially in dressage, um, because of the way that horses develop. Um, it is not unusual for horses to rear up as opposed to, for instance, bucking or, you know, crow hopping or kicking or any of those kinds of things, um, because they're so powerful in their hind ends and they have such strong backs. And this is one way to propel a rider into the air, but it also puts them at risk of losing their balance. So um, one of my competition horses who's long retired was a little bit famous at local shows for going straight up in the air every time I got on him uh, or every time a horse came near him or in the warm-up arena. Um, it was his way of showing that he was terrified of things that were happening around him. And there is always a risk, obviously, that that horse will then lose balance or get out of control. And that has happened a few times, not on that particular horse, but um, elsewhere. And it is, it's a humbling experience. It's like there, you have no control. You have so little control, it's not even funny. Um, and so all of your illusions that it's you making things happen just dissipate instantly and you go, oh no. <laughs> no, I am the one who has to submit now to circumstances. Dressage is very much about like this very controlled kind of riding. Yeah. It's this very formalized, almost dance. Yeah. Um, and I'm curious, what are the origins? Is that a Renaissance phenomenon? So theoretically, theoretically, um, you're going to get a longer answer than you want. Theoretically, dressage <laughs> arises from the medieval training of the warhorse because the warhorse was intended to be responsive enough that, um, you know, it could do significant battlefield maneuvers, uh, very quick turns, spins, and the airs above the ground um, lashing out with its hind legs, rearing up. Uh, in a low rear so that its belly was protected, but so that its um, front legs could lash out at, um, you know, anybody who was attacking its rider. Um, there were a whole list of things that it was supposedly derived from. You need a tremendous amount of development in the horse's physical being and also in the rider to be able to produce those movements. The truth is that had a very short and limited applicability and what came to be dressage, the origins of dressage in the Renaissance are really about display. Mm. They're about demonstrating the authority of the rider. They're about demonstrating the wealth and nobility of the rider by presenting a beautiful picture. I mean, dressage is, I think an incredibly beautiful sport and a beautiful dance, as you said, but to produce that dance, uh, you have to invest just a phenomenal amount of time and labor and knowledge. And of course, those things were only available to the very uppermost classes, which used them to celebrate their own supposed right to rule over others. And so every time you see in the Renaissance a what looks like what will become a dressage horse trotted out in public, it is almost always to make a political point, to make a point that's ideological. What that means for dressage now, I don't know. There's an enormously long history between the Renaissance and now about the different ways in which training and dressage um, ideals happened and were transformed uh, over and over again, actually, from the 18th century through the 19th century and into the 20th. There are so many different stories to tell about it, um, but it does have still a connection. You can see even in the portraiture, the images, and sometimes the writing between those original intentions and training methods and what we do today. A Grand Prix dressage to these days is done to music. 
so is that is, is there a is there a continuous line of tradition of doing that that goes back because there are there are musical events you know in, involving horses and part of that display is a kind of a musical display yeah so i actually did uh, you you can do musical freestyle it's called freestyle which is um performance set to music at most levels um grand prix is obviously the highest level it's the international level of competition uh, that you would see at the Olympics. Um, I did a musical freestyle on my Grand Prix horse, which was a lot of fun. It was set to the music of Pacific Rim, which I thought was hilarious, <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, my my spouse's favorite movie, uh, and it was it was instructive about how musicality is produced in a ride because it's a lot rougher than you think it is. Going all the way back to Plato, the idea of the training of both humans and horses and that connection to skill sets that included music and dance and fencing and all kinds of physical developments and also intellectual and artistic developments, you know, that connection remains true through the Renaissance, all the way through the practice of horsemanship, all the way up to the present moment. The idea that a horse's performance should be like a dance that it should have a certain musicality, that particularly that it should have a certain rhythm and expressiveness. Um, Those things have remained consistent. Uh, And so you had, you know, different developments out of this. um, One of which was that massive horse ballet, um, which I know Alexa had actually um, mentioned in um, some of the questions before we began the, the podcast. And those horse ballets, Uh, in Europe were massive demonstrations of what were really noble, considered noble arts. Again, who has the time, the money, the know-how to train in music, and then to bring that sense of music into conjunction with the performance of the horse, and then to produce that in many horses with routines where people are, you know, traveling in certain directions or going in pairs or making formations um, the the plates that illustrate these things are really fascinating because they were clearly very complicated performances, but they're all again intended to introduce to audiences and affirm for audiences the idea that all of these kinds of skill sets converge in producing um, noble identity. They're propaganda, really. I mean, they're just sort of like, hey, look at us, <laughs> we're great. <laughs> look at what we can do. Um, yeah, and and I think. So I have to I have to say, musical freestyles now are also a little bit of a demonstration of that. Um, they're more fun for the rider. You get to divert from the prescribed patterns that we have to ride in competition because you make your own choreography. So you do your own choreography and you can highlight wonderful things that your horse can do. Um, There are changes of rhythm and tempo. You have to demonstrate all of the gates properly and all of the the advanced level things that you learn as a Grand Prix dressage rider. And you do all of this to the music, uh, which means that you also have to be incredibly good at producing that ride with that horse in sync with the horse. Because if you get off beat or if you get out of sync with the music, it's very obvious. Um, Yeah, so there's still that sense that riding has a kind of inherent musicality to it. One of, when we talk about modern training, we talk about um, a a pyramid, a a sort of training pyramid. And one of the very first things that you're supposed to be able to achieve with an animal is rhythm. 
uh, nothing else can happen until you have rhythm. I was watching a uh, musical event involving dogs, trained, you know, agility dogs, right? The other other day. And it's, it kind of struck me that the, the dogs were not, they were sort of choreographed, but they were not really responding to the music. They were not in the rhythm. The owner was obviously, you know, as as part of that kind of choreography. Um, Whereas when I've seen Grand Prix dressage, they're so on beat that it's got to be a fact that the horse itself can hear the beat and can respond to that. And I wonder whether I can see why uh, a musical event would be ideologically, you know, for propaganda purposes, it makes sense that they would want to have that as part of it. Is there any recognition in the early modern period that horses hear music differently than some of the other domestic animals? So I don't know of anything. I've read almost all of the treatises. And and to be honest, it's not clear that horses hear it. I'd be the first person to say horses can hear the music if they want to and if they get used to it. But since your body responds, even at a completely subconscious level, since the rider's body responds, the horse's body is always responding to the rider's body. So it's always possible to argue that they don't hear the music. Um, But I will say that there's a wonderful moment in William Cavendish's general system of horsemanship where he has a plate. He he includes all of these beautiful plates at the end of the, um, the final version that he eventually produced in the 17th century. And one of those plates is the horses in their field free, you know, they're not, ha- they're no riders around, just a whole bunch of young horses, mares, older horses, and they're practicing their steps. They're like practicing their little, you know, <laughs> uh, high steps and their lavades and their airs above the ground. And it, it suggests that they not only understand what's going on in a kind of, in the way that students would uh, and want to perfect their performance, um, but also that they may have the kind of sense of rhythm that lets them accomplish some of those high schooling accomplishments. They're, they're like, you don't really get to do uh, a capriole, for example, which is when the horse actually leaps all the way off the ground, kicks out behind. Um, you don't get to do that if you don't have rhythm. There's no way. And it's not natural to a horse to do it in that kind of shape. But it, clearly Cavendish was fantasizing that horses could do this stuff. And I think you anybody may- who rides probably imagines that their horse is with them totally and is listening and horses have very acute senses of hearing so who knows who knows you mentioned cavendish can you tell us a little bit about sort of the history of equitation manuals and horsemanship manuals in general um sure they go all the way back to Xenophon, right? So Xenophon is often cited as everybody's source because Xenophon actually has a wonderful text that demands that riders care for their animals in a way that strikes particularly modern ears and eyes as really insightful about what animals need from humans, Um, uh, was a proponent of a much more gentle style of training. In the Middle Ages, you get rehashings of some of that Uh, material from Xenophon. And in the uh, Renaissance, you have an explosion of horsemanship manuals. Again, this probably has less to do with people actually performing any of the um, exercises and activities that are associated with advanced horsemanship, and rather this desire to buy into 
the idea that you could become more noble somehow by showing yourself to be a superior writer. So there's a sort of mini explosion from the end of the 16th through the 17th centuries. Many of them are their exercises in fiction. Um, one of my good friends in the field, Liz Toby, edited uh, Federigo Brizzone's The Horsemanship Manual from Italy in the 16th century, which is supposedly, supposedly the foundation of a lot of later ones. And she points out that many of the things that he says you should be doing are just being said because readers expect that stuff. Um, so he actually has a moment where he says, if a horse doesn't go forward, you should tie some like, um, I don't know if it's badgers or raccoons or something to its tail and let them, you know, fright it into going forward. Um, her, her read on this is that most of that stuff, it's like when Walter Raleigh goes traveling and says he's found Amazons, you know, when he's in Guyana or something like that. It's the fiction that um, readers expected. And so there's a lot of that kind of stuff in the texts. Um, and some of that is meant to show human dominance over animals. Underneath that layer or alongside that layer, however you want to think about it, is actually some very good advice about writing. Um, so John Astley, again, end of the 16th century, his, um, his manual is really insistent about having soft hands and not abusing the bit in a horse's mouth. And of course, in the Renaissance, the bit would have been a very deep shanked bit. It would have had it would have looked more like a um, Western bit and been much more uh, aggressive in its action in the horse's mouth. And he's really insistent that you have to be very careful how you use that. Um, even Grisone is insistent about things like praising the animal repeatedly for everything that it does well. And then you get all the way up to somebody like Cavendish, who's um, writing you know, during and after the Civil War, so middle of the 17th century, who imagines himself producing a kind of new, he actually calls it the new method, a new method of training. And it's a method of training that's, again, very humane. Um, it has none of the fictions about crazy things that you do to a recalcitrant horse. Um, he's uh, aware of different kinds of bits and, and equipment, but he's much more interested in pattern training, like using patterns of action to produce a horse who knows how to do those things. Um, so, you know, just habituating and praising. Uh, again, he talks a lot about cherishing the horse. Um, so you're supposed to be gentle and considerate and understanding and positive. And there are a number of other authors who I think um, similarly kind of celebrate versions of horsemanship that are recognizable to us. You just kind of have to uh, parse the, the material and, and understand that some of it is, is there for other reasons than what we would assume, which is to give people advice. Was there any kind of recognition of, you know, the whole tradition of um, horsemanship in the Islamic world, the idea that there were all of these manuals that were written well before the 15th century in the Islamic world? Were those transmitted at all? Were any of those ideas shared? Was there any acknowledgement that they came from afar? Oh, God, no. The English <laughs> thought that they invented it. No, um, in all seriousness, the English, um, 
and this actually probably is partly what Cavendish is getting at, the English and to some degree the French and obviously the Italians, the Italians were masters early on, um, were pretty nationalistic in and, and you know, uh, centered their writing on their own traditions, what they believed were their own traditions. If you read Donna Landry's work, she's an 18th century historian, and she also has written a lot on horses and riding. She'll talk about the Turkish seat, um, which was the shortened stirrup um, that was used in a lot of areas in the Middle East. Uh, it's actually a very effective way of riding, uh, very useful, um, and was eventually adopted all the way throughout Europe and England as what we now call the hunt seat or a jumper seat. Um, but she points out that uh, this did not make inroads in part because uh, most Europeans were not the slightest bit interested in the knowledge that could be gained from anywhere outside of Europe, uh, which is kind of sad because you're right. There was an incredibly long tradition, not only of riding skills that were passed on, but also horse keeping, horse care, horse breeding. And it's actually shocking that that didn't transmit more clearly and consistently, partly because um, Europeans always wanted the horses that came from the Middle East, right? The Arabian, the, the Turk, the Barb, they were all highly valued horses and were desperately sought and cost enormous amounts of money and often came with grooms because if they didn't, they would waste away and die in this weird environment that they were imported to. But the Europeans, you know, no, the answer is short answer is no. Um, in one <clears throat> early piece of writing I did, um, I pointed out that when Cavendish has all of these plates, he incorporates uh, non-Western grooms in them. Sometimes they, they look like Moors. Sometimes they look like they're from uh, the Middle East. But it's always framed as being appropriated to England and being reframed as the English ability to assimilate everything useful from everywhere else and make it their own. Without, without really acknowledging it. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So if horsemanship manuals are emphasizing, you know, cherishing the horse and, and sort of kind methods of training, there is a famous quotation, I think it's from Robert Burton, where he says that England is a paradise for women and a hell for horses. Uh, how, like, what, what, does, what does that quotation mean in, in its original context? What, like, what is being said there? Yeah, so it was it was a heaven for horses that were expensive and belonged to noblemen who were interested in, you know, training them. Uh, English horses were uh, maligned and despised. You know, Henry VIII had a program for improving horses because the English horses were so nasty. <laughs> they were not, and they weren't. They were just larger, raw-boned, useful, uh, you know, they were good as cart horses. Um Probably they had they had not maintained the kind of breeding practices that would preserve the better kinds of confirmation in horses. They were not yet interested in racing, so horses did, didn't necessarily follow those kinds of light patterns that will eventually produce the thoroughbred um, through interbreeding the Arabian horses of various kinds to English horses, to native English horses. And of course, if you were a cart horse or a, even a carriage horse in some ways, you were you know, your life was nasty, brutish, and short. I teach Black Beauty in my animals and literature class, my general general course. Um, and things like the reins that were used to hold the horse's head up in the air 
that prevented them from actually using any of their musculature to carry loads or to pull a cart were devastating. Um, and people only knew to abuse a horse if it didn't do what they wanted it to do. Um, very few people were particularly well educated about animal care in general, uh, all the way across the board. And so, you know, horses were uh, roundly beaten frequently and obviously and to death in some cases. And I'm sure their, their lives were terrible. Uh, if you were the if you were the Duke of Newcastle's horse, that was so not true, right? He he would spend any amount of money on a horse, and then on its upkeep and its feed, and it you know it had a life that was a lot easier. Um, it didn't work all day every day constantly. It maybe got ridden for an hour or so. Still true today. For the most part, we don't have working horses anymore. But working horses' lives. Uh, if you know the controversy over carriage laws in New York City, for example, they seem quite harsh. Um, and, you know, we don't have a whole lot of animals that are laboring in the same way that they would have in the Renaissance. But the Renaissance relied on them for everything and, uh, you know, didn't didn't necessarily have quite the same attitude towards preserving them. Mm hmm. You mentioned this uh, breeding program that Henry VIII wanted to start. How does that relate to sort of the concept of horse breeds more generally and and the sort of whole history of developing specialized breeds for specialized purposes? So I'm not really a specialist in breeds and breeding. Um, my 18th century friend Richard Nash does a lot of that because he's interested in the thoroughbred. Obviously, the origins of the thoroughbred are kind of the foundation of truly modern breeding practices with a stud book and all the rest of it. The concept, of course, breeds seems to go back quite a long way, six or 700 years. And Apparently, so this is interesting, but apparently DNA studies that have been done recently actually trace almost all horses in the modern world back to only two kinds of horses from the ancient world. And, you know, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, but I think I read this recently, um, one of which was from the Arabian Peninsula and the other of which was from the Eurasian steppe. I think it's the Turkmen that's from the Eurasian steppe. And the Turkmen is... Um, is extinct. The Arabian obviously still exists, but there is nothing about today's Arabians that relates even remotely to ancient Arabian horses. Um, but these were all highly prized and valuable animals uh, for a number of reasons. One was actually that in the Middle East, their breeding records were kept meticulously for generations and generations. And so, um, you know, areas of Middle East had a real concept of, um, it, it was almost a concept of genetics. They understood that breeding had a certain randomness to it, but also understood how to sort of reproduce the best qualities of an animal and its line, which is a tricky thing, actually. It's a very difficult thing to actually breed true um, the qualities that you want. And Europeans tripped to this fact and also tripped to the fact that those horses were beautiful uh, skillful, agile, very attached to humans. I actually had an Arabian long ago, um, and they are incredibly human-oriented, human-centered animals. They they bond like no others that I've ever been with. And the Europeans kind of really wanted this as an influence in their own animals. Um, 
they also admired the Spanish horses, the Iberian breeds, you know, the Andalusian, Lusitano, and what we would now think of as like the, the horses in the Spanish riding school that had those beautiful, beautiful top lines, heavy, heavy haunches, heavy necks, nicely put together, short coupled, very useful horses, nice to ride, really nice to ride. They're popular now because old ladies like me don't want our backs raunched every time we ride the trot. And those horses are so smooth, so beautiful. And so the Europeans uh, tried to kind of garner these animals uh, as much as they could. They were usually stopped in getting barbs, Arabians, and Turks by the fact that those horses were never for sale to anybody. Um, and they persisted over time. So, you know, there was a sense that there was something like breeds, you know, there was a Spanish horse, but it wasn't clear that the, the Lusitana was different from the Andalusian. Uh, it wasn't clear how they were different from European horses. It was clear that the Middle Eastern breeds were, were very identifiable. And it was clear that Northern horses who are kind of big and lumpy and all that kind of stuff. I'm being really mean about northern horses. They were probably just fine. Um, so, you know, they they were looking to perfect breeding systems. But I think it's not until the 18th century that you really get um, the beginnings of what would become the expansion of horse breeding so that there are really enormously recognizable breeds and subbreeds and crossbreeds and all the things that we have today. Yeah. Although even today, the 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 qualities or the, the words somehow that are associated with breed go back to some of these uh, pre-modern ideas about the humors, right? The hot-blooded horse and the cold-blooded horse. You know, my my students at, at Albion ride warm bloods. <laughs> yep. You know, so. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And there's still actually a color prejudice. Um, we had a conversation about this. I was looking for a horse a while back. I just got a young one. And um, I'm not fond of chestnuts. And I've never known why. And I think it's because chestnut horses are considered a bit loopy. Like, And that goes all the way back to the Renaissance, like people writing about colors. Um, and chestnut horses, there's the chestnut mare beware comment which, you know, is, it's obviously nonsense. And I know it's nonsense, but it's now really a prejudice. Um, and there's, yes, there's absolutely that humoral language um, that defines horses' temperaments. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, in the, in the Renaissance, of course, they would have said that the temperaments were associated also with coat color. I've always enjoyed Cavendish, again, because in general system of horsemanship, he says, that's some nonsense, rubbish. <laughs> what are these idiots talking about? It doesn't matter what color your horse is. Um, and, you know, it doesn't matter what markings it has. But people had a whole system, a rubric for understanding what a horse's behavior would be like from its color. Arcides horse, by the way, is black. And I've always thought there's an interesting kind of uh, race component to the idea of the black horse as a problem. Right. Well, I mean... Pre-modern ideas of of breed um, are become factored into you know the, the the concept of race. I think so. That's I mean, it's one reason why we're so interested in when does breed occur and you know when does is it lineage? I mean, when you record your your the breeding of your animal back into time, that can just be lineage, which you might apply in, within families. Right. Uh, but but when it becomes you know a breed, that's a different. That's kind of a different idea. 
So I was looking behind me because um, Mackenzie Cooley has just come out with a book called The Perfection of Nature, Animals Breeding and Race in the Renaissance. I don't think a lot of people, it's very new, and I don't think a lot of people have been reading it, but she's working on exactly that kind of nexus of things, um, the way in which breeding language and the um, language that's applied to race and religion and ethnicity and everything um, emerge in this period. As an art historian, I'm always curious about sort of the ways in which horses are marshaled to to create like a, a certain kind of um, atmosphere in a visual representation, whether it's a portrait on horseback or a portrait with a horse or whether it's um, just, you know, sort of a, I suppose, landscape scene with horses. And um, I guess I can, I mean, I can think of a few really memorable Renaissance images from England. Um, Of course, Elizabeth in sort of state on horseback, but is that a common trope of, of, the portraits of people in power in the 16th century in England, as much as it is, say, in Italy or Spain at that time? Uh, sure, absolutely. Um, so it, the the problem for the English was they didn't have the artists that the Europeans had. <laughs> you had Holbein and then not a lot of others. But yes, there are, um, there are representations of... Um, the kind of idea of the right to rule uh, expressed through the mastery of the animal and also the kinds of background that make you, you know, suitably noble to be in a position of power. Um, In statuary, in um, uh, painting, but it takes off in the 17th century. And again, I actually think that's because England is behind um, they're slow. They don't have the same kind of court culture that has been a tradition in Europe for hundreds of years. They're not as rich as Europe. They don't have artists on hand like the Europeans do. I mean, really, it's interesting that in the 16th century, England is still an aspirant nation. You know, it wants to be bigger than it is. It wants to be more important than it is. And the art is is associated with that. You know, a lot of the depictions are less familiar in some ways as portraiture or landscape or whatever it is that you see on the the continent. Um, For instance, there's the uh, funeral procession representation um, of Sir Philip Sidney with all of the horses, all of the trappings. It's that long, um, uh, I don't even know what to call it. It's that long image. Um, There's, I think, behind me, you see the illustrations for the Canterbury Tales, which also involve a whole lot of horses who are fairly well differentiated um, and identifiable. Like you can tell which ones are palfreys and which ones are um, war horses and stuff like that. Uh, It's just that, you know, Europe has, I mean, Europe has so many better artists who are better trained in the anatomy that you need to know in order to depict horses well. And so you just see metric tons more of this stuff on the continent. Yeah, I'm actually looking right now. I have up on my screen an image um, that is reprinted in a very famous essay by Michael Baxendall, the art historian. It's the chapter in his book on uh, painting and life in 15th century Italy called The Period Eye. And he has all these illustrations of horses and he sort of 
silently making the point that Italian artists knew their horses really, really oh. well. So I have a, an image yes. um, by Pisanello, you know, of a horse, the same horse from yeah. the front and the back. And um, yeah, Da Vinci's got massive amounts of, you know, exactly, I mean, exactly. obviously intense knowledge of horse anatomy and what the movement of horses is like. Yeah. I mean, there are those wonderful drawings, the pen and ink drawings that he did for um, one of his installations where he has the wild horses kind of eating each other. Um, he, it, it's just so different. And again, the English were just a bit behind. By the 17th century, you start seeing all of these portraits, you know, the famous one. I mean, they're actually borrowing European artists to do them. Um, mm -hmm, but there, mm -hmm. there's the one of Charles um, on horseback with the horse. It, the horse has its tiny head so that it's less rational than Charles, who has a really big head. Um, <laughs> uh, and you see over and over these kind of repetitive scenes of the royal family out hunting on horseback and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. It's just, again, I think it's a matter of access in, in art. Um, I don't know. I'm not an art historian, but I'm just guessing from what I see. I love working on the visual stuff. Absolutely love it. And mm -hmm. I do it every chance I can get. Mm -hmm. um, and I, you just don't find a whole lot in 16th, 15th and 16th centuries in England. So what is happening uh, in terms of the, well, I guess the tack um, for the horses, but also the, I don't know, I guess you might call it caparisons or, you know, the, the kind of the decorations that are sometimes often associated with the elite horses. What's happening in the in the uh, early modern period? Again, it's sort of like you can see the legacy of the warhorse in them. So you know they still have all of the trappings, including the um, the various face plates that are supposed to protect the horse's head. Um, they have armor. There's still armor remnants in a lot of what they put on the horses, but a lot of these are being turned into cloth or leather. Um, because what you want now is you don't you don't actually have a huge tradition of horses in battle armor anymore. Uh, there's no real huge point to it because that's not how they're using horses in the military. Um, the idea of the horse as part of a shock force of knights on large mounted animals went away as soon as you had really good munitions and artillery and pikes. I mean, you know, you run your horse into a pike a few times and you stop actually riding your horse into a pike. And they're used more for scouting and for um, actually really used more for scouting and for mobility. Um, so you don't need that kind of stuff, but you want to, you want to remind people who are watching you in a parade, for example, that your, your quality of life and your claims to superiority and you know to blue-bloodedness and to all of the prerogatives of your class are based on a tradition in which you might once have actually ridden horses into battle for the king. Um, and so you sort of you know you, you take what was once actual armor and you turn it into something pretty. Um, and make sure that your horse is beautifully dressed every time it steps out in public, I guess. Uh, it's, it, it's very much like what happens on a lot of other fronts to the nobility, to the aristocracy in England at the same time. They're losing a lot of their um, actual real world utility. They're no longer the people that you necessarily would turn to. You know, once Henry VIII starts to centralize and bureaucratize government, um, he's taking power away from people that would have once been needed to support the king 
and to make sure his reign was a peaceful one or a long one. Um, and Henry's in, intent on making that no longer a threat, um, you, you know, you have different ways of mustering your army. Uh, and eventually under uh, somebody like Cromwell, you know, this will become a new version of professionalism. But you, you, you no longer have that power, you no longer have that real world power, but you want to symbolically remind people that the reason that you're in the position you're in was because you once did. So much of, of the the ideas behind uh, horsemanship seem to be deeply gendered um, in this period. You know, if it's about mastery, domination, political, you know, um, political statements, all of these things seem to indicate that it is that riding horses is something that men do rather than what women do. We had a we did an episode on um, falconry um, in which we learned a lot about about women and falcons, another animal that's associated with the elites. So, what do we know about women riding horses in the early modern period? Um, obviously, they did, uh, and and rarely are actually portrayed not only on horseback but i can think of at least a couple of paintings on horseback with falcons um elizabeth the first reputedly loved to ride and was um you know a kind of hellion on horseback in her day <laughs> women hunted they from the time of what was it richard the second i think when um Anne of Bohemia, stride. yeah, huh? Anne of Bohemia. She what? She thought it was unladylike. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. The, the different positions that women were put in on horseback were always a problem. You know, you either rode astride, and the wife of Bath is portrayed as riding astride in most of the illustrations for for Chaucer. Well, okay, if you've ever tried to get on a horse jacking up full length skirts you know that this is not a particularly comfortable way to ride. You know, you're not going to go very far without getting incredibly uh, sore in shape. Um, riding side saddle. I have actually ridden side saddle uh, way back in the day when I was much younger. I had a trainer who uh, competed side saddle on her Arabian, which was quite beautiful to watch. And if you rode side saddle over anything except flat ground, then I would kneel to you and salute you as a goddess because that is the hardest thing I ever did to, to sort of, it's not hard to train a horse, um, it, but it's hard to sit that way. Uh, you're basically always turned sideways and you're so precarious. You only have one side that you can rely on to gain your balance from. Um, so it's very dangerous, I think. <laughs> and this kind of repeats itself over and over, like the obstacles that are thrown up to women. You know, by the 18th century, there are women Philip Astley has a the beginnings of what would become a circus. He does this show on horseback, and he has women not only riding, but riding trick riding and doing acrobatics and stuff like that. So there are clearly women who are riding, both hunting, you know, um, the elites. Um, many of them would have needed to ride because they had to, um, you know, travel long distances, and carriages weren't always optimal for getting across landscapes. But you would need to be quite persistent to be a very good horsewoman, um, determined and persistent and willing to put up with a lot of physical discomfort. And you just, you know, you see a limited amount of representation of that. Mm -hmm. uh, I think because riding is associated with masculinity and because riding a horse, to be blunt, is a, it puts you in a 
physical position that women were not supposed to be given access to, right? You are not supposed to be riding a large and powerful thing that is not a man that you're married to, right? Um, there are just obvious reasons why <laughs> that would not have gone over well in the Renaissance. Um, so I'm, you know, it's not something I'm specializing in. I've always watched, like, as I'm doing research, watched out for any of this and any of the information that might mm -hmm. kind of affirm all of my sense of how this worked. It's very hard to come by because very few women would talk about writing as a passion or writing as a skill or any of that sort of thing. Maybe you can help me understand the origin of the phrase, a horse of a different color. You know, I did not know that. Um, but it turns out it's from Shakespeare, Twelfth Night. Um, Mariah in Act Two says something to the effect of, here's a, a horse of, uh, there's another horse of that color. She's, I think she's in the midst of plotting um, against Malvolio. And it, it migrates from, oh, here's a thing that's like that thing, like they're both the same color, to it's a thing that's different from that thing, a horse of a different color, um, as far as I can tell. But I thought that was fun that it is a shape. It seems to be a Shakespeare thing. I'm really pleased to learn that because the Wikipedia entry only referenced like 20th century sources, particularly the Wizard yeah. of Oz, of course. Of course, the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's a horse of a different color. Yes, and it really is a horse of a different color. Um, yeah, I mean... Obviously, as we've already talked about the ways in which a range of color associations were available in the Renaissance. And so it makes perfect sense for Mariah to say that, uh, you know, that's it's another thing that's like this thing that we're going to be doing. Yeah. And I mean, I think it goes back to what you were saying about the sort of differing valuations of the colors and also this idea of a kind of, um, and again, I'm kind of going back to Michael, Michael Baxendall, but this idea that there's a kind of charge on viewers in the in the early modern to really be knowledgeable about categorization and to develop um, vocabularies of description around objects and things that are yeah. that are of interest so you know whether they're paintings or horse colors he talks about the sort of incredibly diverse horse vocabulary of 15th century italy yeah, it's like um, hunting manuals and uh, banqueting manuals. Each one of these, you can find, you can always find one where somebody has decided to make a glossary of all the terms and you finally go, oh my goodness gracious, this is why I've had no success at understanding any of this. Right? Yeah. I um, The hunting manuals are over the top about um, the language. So a funny story, I rode out with the hunt many times. When I was a kid, I used to go on um, fox hunts um, and did so in England a lot when we would go back there. Um, and I, I never got used to calling the dogs hounds and I get slammed for it every time. And I was riding with the hunt up in um, Tennessee with a friend and she just turned to me and said, if you can't say hounds, just don't speak. And I was like, you know, Okay, but it's because the terminology is just absolute to people who are in that world. The terminology is absolute. And I get that. Like, I get that. I understand how that works in the horse, in the horse world. I understand how that works in the Shakespeare world. 
You know, we don't yeah. always explain ourselves very well, but we understand all that cant in the plays and the, the weird language and the weird sentence structure and the references to, you know, classical stuff. And every now and then my students call me up short because I have forgotten that they don't know all those things. So I get I got the hostility. I understood that. So if our listeners want to know more about the difference between dogs and hounds, you can listen to our episode on the Mastiff, <laughs> where we cover that very topic. Hey, they're all dogs to me. <laughs> I don't know. Now they are. Now they are. I don't are. know the difference. Yes. Right. Well, this has been super fascinating. You know, I grew, I grew up in the West writing Western style and the whole sort of like European history of, of the, the kind of writing that that we called Eastern style writing, though I don't believe yeah. it's actually called that. <laughs> I think it's called English. It always seemed a little obscure to me. So this has been really fascinating. So the word carousel, I believe was originally a word for a horse ballet. Um, oh, yeah, 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 sure. Do, do we know like, so at what point does carousel become you know, a machine for entertaining young people? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. But you're right. A lot of those prints, particularly the ones from uh, France that I'm thinking of, the Pluvenel, the big Pluvenel horse ballets, they often call them carousels. And they move in that kind of slow ritual way. You can see this. You can still see this like at, at some dressage shows that I've been to people will do, you know, a pas de deux or um, four four horses will do some kind of patterns. And they do these wonderful, like the, the Spanish riding school stuff where they thread the needle and they come back down and, you know, in sync with each other, right side by side. And then they split off. They do all these wonderful patterns. But that, I don't know anything about how that, how that term comes to be or how it translates. I like I read something once about an origin in like, tournaments and jousting and these sort of displays of courtly chivalric writing skill skills you know again in italy because all the fantastic choreographed stuff seems to be italian if you really dig into the origins no slight to the to the british the english actually and and you know the welsh the, the scots they all could actually mobilize their horses in battle and in jousting. And Henry VIII, you know, he was terribly injured in a joust. It was one of the things that um, was... Changed his personality. Yeah, Yeah. changed him radically and troubled him for the rest of his life. Um, But clearly, you know, England had, had that tradition as well and had enough big, massive horses to do it properly. I mean, you do not want to joust on an Arabian or... Mm -hmm. Even at warm blood, I don't, think, I don't think any of my horses would tolerate me with a lance on its back. Well, this has been such fun, and we are so grateful for your for your time and your expertise. And I know our listeners will really appreciate uh, what you've had to tell us. Well, I hope so. Thank you so much. I'm so honored to be here. It was a pleasure. It's always fun to talk to you guys. Thank you. Thank you. If you have questions or comments or suggestions about future episodes, we would love to hear from you. Just go to realfantasticbeasts.com and you will find lots of ways to join the conversation.